You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. I think I start out every episode by saying we're very lucky to be joined by, but uh, in this case, um, uh, we are we are extremely lucky that uh, uh, our next guest was able to, to uh, carve out some time for us. Uh, we're sitting with Sheila Evans, the CEO of the Allentown Symphony, and uh, Sheila and I first met a long, not a long time ago, but five or six years ago. Yeah, and I think um, right as Sheila took over as CEO uh, of the symphony in 09, I had joined the board of directors a little bit after that, maybe six months. And uh, and we've, um, you know, it's been interesting to watch the organization uh, evolve under your leadership. And um, we, we uh, the, the city's definitely benefited from the organization being more robust and programming, you know, has, has increased quite a bit, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, so, Sheila, welcome. Thank you. Um, one of the things that we we talk about on the podcast here is professional journeys in the arts, how people get to where they are. Um, and it's not always obvious when you're younger or starting out, whether you're uh, in high school or in undergrad, and you're trying to figure out how, you know, how do you make your way in a field that um, may have a little bit of, of uh, mystery because it has sort of one foot, you know, at least in the uh, musical performing arts, symphony orchestras and things, you have sort of one foot in show business and one foot in uh, nonprofit issues, corporate governance, fundraising, and a, and a host of other unrelated, seemingly unrelated uh, strengths that you need to have. And, you know, Sheila's journey was a little bit uh, unusual, at least in my experience, in that, and when we'll uh, maybe you're the best one to tell tell the story. But you you initially uh, were working in corporate America for for quite a while, and where where were you before you made the leap into the nonprofit world? So let me start before that, um, not that far ahead. But I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and was a good violin player, and went to the appropriate places that good violin players in high school and in college go, Interlochen and the Aspen School of Music in, in Colorado. And while in Aspen, I met my violin teacher, a guy named Misha Mishikoff, who was Toscanini's concertmaster, who was Tchaikovsky's concertmaster, who was the Tsar of Russia's last concertmaster before the Russian Revolution. He was 80 when I studied with him. And I went back and lived in his attic in Detroit. And took lessons from him, and was hoping to have a professional career playing violin. And this was the early 70s. There were not women in the American orchestras at that time. It really was just starting with the opening of equal rights, with the opening of closed auditions, so that you could not see who was performing. 
And I was really young. And so I went back and I played in the Omaha Symphony, which is a great orchestra now, and the Lincoln Symphony. And then did that for a couple of years and said, you know what, I think I would rather make money. And so I simply went to Arizona State and got an MBA in marketing and finance and moved after that back to Detroit and started life in the Bell System then as a marketing person. Bell, Bell Telephone. Bell Telephone, yes. It's well it's an I and the reason I say that is it's amazing as I'm like I'm getting back into teaching privately a little bit. So some of my students who are high school age uh, have never even had broadband internet or dial up internet like you know what we you know when we had modems and things like that which to us seems like a recent thing they have no idea what that is cuz everything's wi-fi so sorry about that interruption so back to bell telephone that's a great interruption actually sorry. Okay. because the irony just to pull it back to allentown is that the first conductor of the allentown symphony was donald Voorhees who That's had right. a radio show for 40 years called the Bell Telephone Hour. Yep. And so we hold his archives of all of the music and the shows from those 40 years of radio about phones. So anyway, I ended up going to work with the um, with the phone companies, AT&T, ultimately, because they had a show called the American Orchestra Show. And they toured an orchestra, and I'm like, ah, I can combine arts and, and marketing and all those good things. Except that I discovered after my first skip level meeting with my boss that that was one job out of the one million employees in the AT&T system. So I ended up staying with AT&T. I got promoted rapidly. I moved from Michigan to New Jersey to Kansas City and got recruited from Sprint. So I kept advancing rapidly in my corporate career. Mm -hmm. And when I came to Sprint, which is headquartered in Kansas City, the opportunity came up to say, um, do you want to be on a nonprofit board? Well, actually, they said, all of your executives are on a nonprofit board. Which one do you want to be on? And they had the symphony board open, and they had the opera board open. And I'm like, well, I love symphony. And they said, okay, that's a personal contribution of $15,000 a year. I'm like, huh. I kind of like opera. How much is that? And it was $2,500 a year. I'm like, I love opera. So I started being on the opera board um, when I was probably about 35. Mm -hmm. And it was the best thing I ever did. Because while I was doing the corporate thing all day and many nights and weekends, um, in a headquarters town in particular, and you, you know the people that you work with, you live in a community of the people you work with, your sphere of influence is pretty much your corporation. And so Sprint knew, you know, Sprint owned Kansas City at that time. And a lot of my peers didn't know anybody outside of that community. The thing that being on a board, whether it's a nonprofit board for the arts or for big brothers and big sisters, is that it gives you a sphere of influence of people that are similarly interested in the things that you don't make a living from. And so that was a really great experience for me. And I did that for 15 years, did strategy for them. It was one of my probably core competency is strategic planning and strategic doing, not the box kind, but the one where you implement it. Right. And then um, got to be the president and the chairman of the board at the end of that time. And 
When my youngest son turned 16, I have three kids, and started driving, I was like, oh my God, what do I do in my free time? Because I'd never had free time. Um, and I'm like, I remember I played the violin. And I hadn't played for 25 years, really. So I took lessons from one of the women that I knew in the symphony, because I had my ex-husband was a bass player, and I, so I knew all the musicians in town. So I called her up. I said, I really am terrible now. I haven't played for 25 years, but will you give me lessons? I will, I will you know, practice. And so I started playing, and then it came to the summer, and for the first time in 100 years, my children, none of them wanted to go on vacation with me because I was on hip. And I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do for vacation? Like, I know. I'll go to music camp. So I looked online, and I found um, that Interlochen, where I'd gone when I was a freshman in college, had a summer music camp for adults. And I went back to Interlochen. I felt just like I did when I was 17, which was, I don't know anybody here. I'm probably not as good as anyone here. Oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. I'm all by myself. Every, everything was different, but exactly the same, the same at, at the same time, yeah. And so as I was walking, because I didn't rent a car from the cabins that are very rustic to rehearsal space, I see the six-foot, six-inch-tall, red-headed bass player. And I'm like, are you Jed Fritzmeyer? And he was. And Jed was at the University of Michigan uh, when we lived in Michigan and beat out my ex-husband for a number of jobs, so that was pleasant. And so then we had, um, he said, don't do chamber music. That's not going to be fun. Play in my fiddling class. And so I did fiddling the whole week I was there, which I'd never done. And it was so much fun because it's just high energy. It's high fun. It's different. And your chops come back really fast. So anyway, that was kind of how I started back down the musical path. When, when you were in charge, uh, when you were the chairman of the board at the Kansas City Lyric Opera, how, how big was the board at that time? About 35 people, I think. Yeah, I think that, yeah. that's one of the things that I find surprises people that have been in the for-profit world, you know, for their, from, you know, their professional life. And they may be used to running a company with a handful of insiders or the, you know, the original, the original investor group was three people. Um, and then they get on a board at an arts institution and all of a sudden there's 30 or 40 people in the room and it's a totally different, uh, dynamic in terms of governance and, um, uh, decision-making and committee structure and, and all of that. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, now, so how long of a period of time were you at, did you serve as the chairman at Kansas City? We had a two-year uh, two year rotation. So it was two years president, two years chairman. They're different roles. But let me go back to your large board question, comment, whatever. Um, one of the learnings for me in transitioning from being a board member to being a executive director, a seeker of funds, came from one of those meetings. And we had an executive board, which was the chairman of all the committees of the board, that met monthly, and the board met bi-monthly. And I was raising a question, a financial question, which is one of the things that I do, in the, in the board meeting of the full board. And the executive director, who I knew well afterwards, hauled me off by my ears, basically, and said, don't do that again said, I don't want to talk about financials during the full board 
because I'm recruiting this gentleman to donate, you know, and hundreds of thousands of dollars for a big project. If you have a disagreement, have it during the exact board meeting. And he said, because, and that is why the boards are so large, because people are there for multiple reasons. Some people are there because they love the, the art. Some people, particularly in larger communities, are there because it's the social right place to be. Right. I was immensely surprised while I was president that one of my ex-peers from Sprint who'd gone on to a big whatever, six consulting firm, um, and moved away, came back, and he said, you know what? I was told there are some people I need to get to know in Kansas City, and you're one of them. And that made us both just chuckle because we were just like, you know, one of a zillion people at Sprint when we knew right. each other first. So you have multiple reasons for being on the board. And even in a smaller community, that's still true. There are people that love to be there. They will do anything for the organization. There are people that have money that you really want to be there, that donate heavily to the organization. Sure. And if you're really lucky, you get both at the same time. And we're very fortunate with my board here in Allentown. The the transition, though, so, and as we talked about before, um, it's, at least in my experience, it's highly unusual for someone to enter the nonprofit world as the leader of an organization at, you know, either in the executive director or president or CEO role, whatever the organization calls its top, uh, its top person. Um, but you did, I mean, you did exactly that. You were, you know, you were in corporate America for a long time, uh, served in a board capacity for a long time. And then this transition happened where you became the executive director in Allentown uh, directly from being the board president in Kansas City. How did, how did that come about? Well, really, the, the journey is a little more egocentric than that. So when I was in Kansas City, I was watching my friends get laid off one by one by one by one from Sprint. And um, for whatever reasons, at a point in your career, you seem to see a lot of your peers leaving. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be one of those people because I had great 17 years at Sprint. And I like to remember those great 17 years. And you do that by leaving on your feet. And so I started to look at, you know, what are my other skill sets and what can I afford to do at this point? Because now my son had graduated from high school. So everybody's off having adventures in mm -hmm. college. And I'm like, I'm not going to sit around and be the empty nest. Like, oh, I hope the kids come home for <laughs> Christmas person. And so I was inspired by my dad, who after my mom passed away, after 56 years of marriage, um, remarried at the age of 79 and moved from Nebraska to Salt Lake City, where he and his wife spent another 17 years, as it turns out, before oh. his death. And But I'm watching him having whole new experiences, new friends, new travels, while his friends are aging mentally, which makes you age physically. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna go have an adventure. And so my original plan, which is where the ego comes in, was that I would go and I would, you know, guide orchestras and other arts organizations strategically as a consultant. Okay. And so in the summer of 08, I think, maybe 09, no, it was 08, I went to a conference that happens every three years of all the executives. And uh, it's like the League of American Orchestras plus the opera world plus the chorus world 
come together. And I went to this conference in Denver. There were 5,000 people there. There were exhibitors out the yin-yang. And I'm like, holy crap. In the last, you know, 25 years while I've been off corporating, there's evolved a business of marketing to the arts and doing things for the arts. So I went to go find a place that I could execute that which I knew I do well, and that is identify strategies, do turnarounds, look for opportunities, and have fun. So the nuts in a very nuts and bolts kind of mechanical way, did you were you working with a search firm or like how did uh, one of the things that um, I always find interesting is how things start? So I left Sprint. And um, was able to take a package, which was great, because it provided security that I could do adventuresome things for a couple years. Mm -hmm. And was working with um, an executive outplacement kind of place. But at the same time, I used the tools that I know from the arts world, which is the League of American Orchestras and various, um, they're just various job boards. And so... Truly, the job that I took was paying about 25% of what I was making as a corporate person. But I had the luxury of not caring for a couple years. And so I interviewed really out in Pennsylvania because it was an opportunity to go interview. And because the guy I was seeing, who I'm now married to, lived in New Jersey. And what the heck, it was you know, real close. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I learned about the difference between the nonprofit world and the for-profit world is I got to pay for my own trip out there. So it's like, heck, that's never going to (laughs) happen. But nonetheless, I had a great visit, really, really loved the board, Um, the people that were on the interview committee, very, very knowledgeable. Uh, They were doing a national search. And they ended up offering me a job, but I'm like, why not? I'll go do this for a while. Did the did this so the search committee they had a consultant that was aiding them in in conducting the search or, or were they doing it all? They had used in house. Um, they had turned over a lot of executive directors prior to my coming, mm-hmm. and yep. with one of or two of the earlier ones, they used very well known national search company. Didn't turn out well for anybody, the board or the ED, and so this one they did on their own. But they knew the tools. They had 103 applicants and um, brought me out, or I brought myself out from Kansas to take a look. And the rest is history, It was, as, as they say. It was a very interesting road, yes. Well, and, and the organization that you came into, um, you know, now there's a full, uh, you know, menu of different kinds of programming. There's... Metropolitan Opera simulcast. There's National Theater simulcasts. There's uh, there's jazz. the Jazz Upstairs program. And but at the time you came in, the building was dark, like 330 days a year, as I recall, or something like that. They were mainly doing just the orchestral concerts. I think like 12 per season with us with a couple of other events, but mostly the building and and. We should also, when we refer to the building, uh, the Allentown Symphony is unique in that it owns its own concert hall. Not many organizations have that. It's maybe both a blessing and a curse in some in some ways. But um, you know, how did you? Did you? I guess I, I think I know the answer to this. But did you see that as an opportunity when you saw 
really how limited the programming actually was before you arrived. The first thing I did before I interviewed was to go and listen to the orchestra because um, if you don't have a good product, you can't sell it. Right. And I knew this because I'm a big baseball fan, and at that time, which is 2008-2009, the Royals were not playing well. Although this has been a very good year You've for them. You've been on a good run recently with that. And they did all sorts of gimmicky things to bring people to the field. You know, they had a mascot. They had, like, go oh, find a diamond in the rough at pitching clinics. But the bottom line is, unless you have a good product, it's not a sellable product. And so I needed to go see if the issue was the product or if the issue was different than that. And so the very, very first thing I did was to go listen to the orchestra. And it's a very good orchestra. And our conductor, Diane Whitry, who's also on your podcast, I believe. Right, yeah. Diane's episode will go live. By the time this airs, Diane's will have been out a couple of weeks, yeah. And um, she's a fine conductor. So I'm like, okay, this is something to work with. The building is both, at that time, was a clear problem. And one of the reasons I was attractive to the organization and the organization was attractive to me is that the um, it was doing really, really badly and needed to figure out how to turn around the whole organization before it fell into the morass. Right. And, and, it, and that's not – and from an outsider's uh, viewpoint, what Sheila just said is exactly right. I mean – it was it, – it's or it seemed to me from what, you know, I was reading in the news and all that stuff, It not that it was on, on the brink of, of going out of business, but it was not in good shape to say the least. It had heavy debt. It had limited income. And one of the death spirals for arts organizations is when you cut programming and cut marketing because if you cut your core of being, you're not going to be successful and then there's no revenue that comes in. And in – the 2008-2009 season, um, the orchestra had cut, or the organization had cut to doing five orchestral programs a year, period. Uh, double, Saturday and Sunday. But had cut out all the Pops concerts, which is what brings in new audiences. Had We had about five jazz, so it was sporadic, not something people could count upon. And the building was dark. So I went to meet with the mayor, along with a group of citizens, to talk about what to do with the building, and at that time it also carried about mm, $2.7 million in debt. Mm. And the mayor's response was, I pitched what you're supposed to pitch, what is really true, which is that a strong arts community brings a strong business community. When people come in and they want to go, <clears throat> if they want to move somewhere, they want to know there's something more than a job, that there's a thing to do after work, that there's a way to you know, involve your spirit and be part of the community. And so I pitched that to the mayor. He says, you know, the theater is dark all but 18 nights a year. So it's not doing a lot for me in selling the city. Light it up. And so that's the focus that I took as to how do we light up the theater with profitable revenue, which inspired people to feel they were giving to a good cause, an ongoing cause, a growing cause. And we started that with the faith of one board member um, with introducing the Metropolitan Opera live on high def. Because I really wanted to do that in Kansas City when I was with the board there. Mm -hmm. But AMC Theaters is headquartered in Kansas City. And they wanted it in their theaters, not in the opera theater. So we didn't. And when I was interviewing, before I even um, had an in-person interview, 
I called the Met and I'm like, hey, do you have anyone in this territory in the Allentown area? And they didn't. And so that was a very um, great way to enter with phenomenal world-class programming, mm-hmm. novel technology, and an opportunity to bring people across the river from Bethlehem, from Easton to Allentown. And because of the faith of one of my board members, she was able with her foundation and another of my board members through his bank to um, fund the equipment to start it up, which had less than a year payback. But we were had no money to do any right. investment at that time. Now, what were the start? So for, and and to, I'm not trying to oversimplify no, of things. Course. But so really what was needed is, just to sort of give the listeners uh, a little bit of context, uh, the theater's a 1,200-seat theater. Um, if you're in Philly, it's about the size of the tower. Um, or if you're in L.A., it's about the size of the Greek, I suppose. Uh, built around 1905. It was actually built in 1896 18... as a community market and turned into a theater in 1900. Okay. I mean, and you can't – you couldn't build this thing today. It just wouldn't be cost-effective to do it. So, So to – so to fast forward to the Met HD simulcast project, you know, the theater needed a large HD projector. The screen is is what, 30 feet by 40 well, feet? Or? Yeah, let me jump in for a minute. Sure. So what did it take to start it? The Met sent out um, a list of requirements, which mm-hmm. was, you know, X high def and Y screen, and you have to have a satellite to pull down the data. But again, the telecom experience is all about customer experience. And so in order to, you could do the minimum, but would that make the customer have the best possible experience? And so instead I went to go visit some local theaters, like movie theaters, say, okay, what's a good customer experience? And I went to the Met in New York and said, okay, what happens here? So when we introduced it, we introduced it with a much higher lumen projector than was required. Mm. We made a screen the size of our proscenium, which is 34 feet by 17 foot. And we light the proscenium as if you're at the theater. And I serve champagne and high-end chocolates in the entryway when you're having, um, when you come in for the performances. So you're trying to replicate a virtual experience in a real space using the same sight and touch and feel things that you would have if you were in New York, however, at a tenth of the price. At least, well, at least that's yes. that's, that's and that's right. not counting parking and all those other great things. So, where do you go? Where you know, where does the organization go from here? What would you like to see happen in the next, you know, short term? Two, well, three years? I have my seven year anniversary in January of two thousand sixteen, and I've been looking at what did I say I would do, and what have I done, and what do we want to do next? And so, the city itself has blossomed amazingly in the seven years I've been here. And now there's a downtown that has activity. But you know what? We are the most cost-effective way to drive activity to other downtown businesses. Because when I fill my hall at 1,200 people, 1,100 people, that's enough people that will fill every restaurant in town. And so what we need is the support of the downtown community to understand that we do drive business. And we're starting to see that as opposed to the other way around, like Mm -hmm. it'll be great to have restaurants. Um, so that's one. It, then the question is always of competition in place. And so we have a very high-quality orchestra. Again, our conductor, Diane Whitry, just was named one of 30 
um, of the top musical influencers by Musical America. And orchestra only appeals to about 4% of the population. So we introduced about five years ago a very robust national touring children's theater program. I love that. It is... Um, brings kids in, brings families in, gets people accustomed to coming downtown to the theater. We made our jazz series, as you well know, Brian, a you know 12-month-a-year, every third Friday series up mm-hmm. in the Rodale Community Room. It is an intimate series of 200 people as opposed to the theater experience of 1,100. And I'll tell you that in Kansas City, I was a member of the Folly Jazz Series, which is was performed in a theater about the size of the Lyric. And it never achieved the intimacy and just great experience that we have. Right. Well, and because jazz, by its nature, is a customer experience that should be very much one to short, one to few, not one to zillions. Mm-hmm. So I love what we do with the jazz series. And then we've expanded what's in the theater to include other performances from the Vienna Boys Choir to Jim Brickman to George Thorogood and Brian Adams. So a lot of variety. The question for the next seven years is how do you stabilize the finances? Because still, the finances from people, you rely on people for about 60% of the income of the organization. Right. And those people and businesses and government are key to the success. So when we serve what people want, when we serve through our educational programming, then we'll continue to be more successful in the next 70 or so years. Well, I can't thank you enough um, for spending some time with us today, and, and hopefully we can come back and do this again at some point soon, because um, we barely scratched the surface of, uh, you know, all the programming that the that the uh, orchestra does, and uh, you're, you're just doing a phenomenal job. So uh, thanks very much, and um, we will uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization, for public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.